Let's take up this business of signs once more. You have not understood. You have remained rationalists, semioticians, Westerners. Let's emphasize it again. It is the road towards libidinal currency that must be opened up by force. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Welcome to Machine and Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get going with today's guest, just want to throw out I've got a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider throwing me a buck a month to help uh, with the costs of putting on the podcast. Very excited we have the Libidinal Band is back together for Chapter 2 of Jean-Francois Lyotard's Libidinal Economy, and I've got returning players this week, good friend Taylor Atkins, got cute Numina, and young Agamben all all back for the happy hour today. Are we ready to get libidinal? Yes, sir. It's uh, it's libidinal time. Is it like, Olivi- like- Olivia Newton-John? Let's get libidinal. Libidinal. <laughs> <laughs> it's a libidinal happy hour. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Do you want to do a little quick intro just in case anyone is uh, unfamiliar with or just kind of stepping into the podcast today? Give a little bit of background on yourself before we get into the meat of the conversation, whoever wants to start. Yeah, I'm, I'm Taylor Adkins. You can see me and Coop doing lots of episodes on all kinds of stuff. Leotara is just one of our most recent, um, but we also have done Larwell and Guattari, basically uh, two of the books I translated by each thinker. And so that's mainly what I do. I'm a translator nerd and lover of all things philosophy, especially the Francais. Go next. It's just cute Numina here. And um, you could just say I'm a theory enthusiast and a Twitter persona. So Resident Kantian. <laughs> Resident Kantian. Boo. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, young Agamben. Basically, uh, just an orbiter of these other folks. Enjoy their content. Make some of my own content, but I got nothing to sell anybody yet. But I'll, I'll come up with a grift soon. Nice. Some way to make money off of it. There you go. So, like I said, we're looking at Chapter 2 from the Hamilton translation of Libidinal Economy, and it's titled The Tensor. But to back up, I think we didn't go over in Chapter 1, one of the more important topics, and I wanted to discuss briefly at least, or kind of straighten out. I think we did comment on the great zero, but not at length. And I think we wanted to clear up a misconception. I think, Taylor, you said you had a maybe misstated something about the great zero. Well, it's my fault for bringing up Deleuze and Guattari and <laughs> the fucking body of the organs and shit. And, and even though we got something productive out of it, I remember, I think, you know, Young was was we were talking about how zero isn't negative. The way that I was talking about it, at least, seemed to be a kind of uh, a monster of Lyotard and <laughs> Deleuze and Guattari. I, I, the the Leo Guattari thing, I don't know. A Leo Guattari. So, so yeah, I mean, we, we should go over the, the, the definition that he gives it because it, it was clear as we were continuing to talk and I was rethinking what I said. I think Lyotard does want the great zero to have something to do with negativity or negation. 
and to use it in this way, uh, contra what I was saying. It, it was like a productive mistake, I think, yeah. right? A happy misreading. Yeah, a happy accident. But yeah, we can we can go ahead and, and yeah. look at this definition. I'm just going to straight up read the definition as Hamilton lays out. The great zero, the name Leotard gives to the instance informing a particular but insistent dispositif on the libidinal band with a disintensification of the bar the libidinal band is folded back into a theatrical volume which has an inside and an outside, an appearance and essence, signs and signified. The inside is then ultimately considered in terms of what is going on on the outside. One of the most important figurations of the outside is the great zero, which serves as a general term to cover the platonic world of forms, God, the authentic mode of production, the phallus, etc., all these instances, and despite their differences, are effects of the slowing down of the bar, referring the intensities running through the band to an elsewhere which they appear to lack once they have been confined to the interiority of a volume. The great zero is thus an empty center, which reduces the present complexity of what happens instantaneously on the band to a chamber of presence and absence. In his description of the great zero, Leotard wishes to show us that all theories of signification are fundamentally nihilistic. So he is largely drawing from perhaps Lacan, at least if he's not ex outright calling it lack, it's at least sort of derived from Lacan's lack maybe. This, this in and of itself is, to me, like one of the most loaded sort of theoretical terms that Loyotard yeah, uses. Right. I think you could definitely relate it to Lacan, but I, I think something that always strikes me about the Great Zero is we can read the definition and we can sort of give our interpretation of it, but the, the Great Zero itself is sort of open to an almost infinite amount of interpretations. So I'm always hesitant to be like, this is, this is what the great zero really is. Because I think for Loyotard, it's a very carefully used term. And it's like in this definition you just read, it is like a constant dispositif in his philosophy. So he's saying it's one of the most important, most important figurations of the outside is the mm -hmm. great zero, which serves as this general term to cover the platonic world of forms, God, the authentic mode of production, the phallus, etc. And all these instances, and despite their differences, are effects of the slowing down of the bar, referring the intensities running through the band to an elsewhere which they appear to lack once they have been confined to the interiority of a volume. So the volume, I'm guessing that's reference to the subject, perhaps? Well, it's also what we talked about last time with topology, right? If the Mobius mm -hmm. strip is, is this one-sided figure, then... You know, and, and if we consider it as, you know, the band, which is intensified with these intensities running through it, with the slowing down, this cooling of the bar and the zero, that's when the Mobius strip is almost, you know, in its, I mean, to put scare quotes, it's falsified, right? It's shown to mm -hmm. be the opposite image of itself, right? It's, or it's static image rather than its dynamic figure. And so... You know, if the strip is, is slowed down enough or if the intensity is slowed down, it's only then that we can say there's an inside and outside to the Mobius strip. That's why he calls it a, a product of disintensification, right? It's, it's, right? it's only when it's intensified that we can, we can no longer... I guess that's the thing. It's like the zero is not some sort of antecedent. The zero doesn't precede the intense strip, right? That the, that the, that the bar itself produces the zero as an effect of its intensification and disintensification so i think that's something interesting the zero isn't like the generator like the one in the mini or the other dialectics right. there's not like some one and zero that are that are doing a dialectic that then gets us to the band and i think that's why it's different from 
the body with organs and all that other stuff that I brought in to kind of adulterate what we were talking about with, with Leotar. Because this question of establishing a scenery is really interesting, right? In that second page, which we were talking about in our pregame, when he talks about dematerialization, which is obviously involved here as well, he talks about a mise-en-scene, but it's, it's not what we normally know. It's not scene as spelled S-C-E-N-E, right? It's not the, the, the film s- term, yeah. Right, or yeah, the film term or the, or the theatrical term of setting up a stage. It's the mise-en-scene of the setting in signs, right? The, it's how signs set a scenery. So the word scene there, it's, it's a, they would be roughly homonymous in French, and I think that that's, that's an interesting play. I don't know if you guys caught that. So how signification with its inside and outside with, you know, Saussure's great bar, the signifier, the signified, which we'll get into today and all that stuff, mm-hmm. how that also is a, is a scenery, right? Is this, is this creating of a staging? Just this description of it as a general term that describes a platonic world of forms, God, authentic mode of production, phallus, etc. It's interesting that there's a move towards materialism, but this sounds very much like a, a transcendent sort of thing or like a metaphysical rather. Right. I mean, because the great zero is a metaphysical thing. And maybe Mm -hmm. that's where perhaps Kant, a reading Kant or Kant can like help tease this out better. I was Uh, just going to add to what you guys have already said pretty much. And that's in so far as, you know, like the systems that you create um, in this sense, it's like, it says there on the definition, one of the most important figurations of the outside is the great zero, which serves as a general term to cover the platonic world of forms, God in the authentic mode of production, the phallus. And um, if you see these as structures or systems, or even like in the Lacanian sense, the diagram that everyone means, in that sense, there's that signification. It always it always lacks in terms of what it totalizes, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, or what it encapsulates. And you could maybe to use a Kantian term loosely, it's like that's always like the, the noumenal, right? That which you can, you always infer, but you, you know that it's there essentially for objects of experience, but you don't uh, you don't really know what makes up that world of the things in itself of the, in themselves. But in this sense, um, the zero would be, you know, once the band is slowing down, to use Leotard's language, these intensities, if they're part of the same band, on one side you have the system or the structure, which is lacking in, in totalizing scope, then the only way that you can actually fill that up or fill that lack is through like a libidinal or an effective interpretation. And that's how that that volume that he speaks about would be, uh, like would come into the equation. So that there's this volume that you fill up this theatrical volume like mm-hmm. i would say that is filled up with science interpretation systems the philosophers i, I don't know like link, structure system for lack of a better conceptualization um and then it's up to i guess like rigorous critique to to fill up what is lacking what uh, is not totalized by that system or by that structure yeah see this still gives a very like lacanian real almost vibe to what you're describing i well. think that's I think that at least the way that I read, I mean, because we talked about this last time in the podcast about how Leotard and everyone at the, the Sorbonne would be going to Lacan's lectures. And I think if anything, uh, Leotard is closer or I guess more, less doing a critique of Lacan and more flushing out yeah. the Freudianism in Lacan. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Sort of like uh, La Ruelle a little bit too, mm-hmm. I think is doing like a similar approach. <clears throat> One thing about the great zero that I've been trying to think through is is this, well, the combination of de-intensification 
and sort of a cooling down these metaphors yeah. that lawyer Chard used to describe right. it. And it's very complicated for me to think through this. So I'll just give like some of my thought processes and I'm wondering what you guys have to think about. When I read this, it, it sort of calls to mind almost like the scientific principle of when molecules are moving faster or speeding yeah, up, there's heat exactly. involved. Yeah. And when they're slowing down, there's, there's cooling. Yeah. So, the thermodynamic sort of. Exactly. Right, exactly. And I sort of imagine it so far as in order to sort of have a shot or in order to sort of conceptualize the totality of a system, you kind of have to slow down the mechanisms of that system where you get right. kind of a snapshot of a dynamic process of things in, yeah, in that moving. Moment. Right. But if you slow it down, you sort of get a conceptual volume, so to speak, of how the system's operating at that particular moment. But that doesn't mean that that is that you can ever totalize the workings of that system. It's just that you get a snapshot about one particular interpretation of the totality itself. Interesting. If that makes sense. So I'm, I'm yeah. interested to see, like, what do you, how do you guys read that? Because that, that always sticks out to me, like those very yeah. direct metaphors. of. I had that same sort of thermodynamic picture of, of diffusion across a membrane that you sort of effectively described as well. If you, that was definitely um, big in my mind. Um, yeah. If you want to go to the definition before the grade zero, it's the, the bar. I think that's yeah. the way that I at least can conceptualize it. When I first started reading, I can read it if you if you want to. If we imagine the libidinal band as having one surface, white hot labyrinth and aleatory, then the bar is to be seen as the operator of de-intensification, which in slowing down allows the displaceability of non-identity the drives, pulsions, and intensities to be arrested and given a designation and signification. It is through procedures of exclusion, notably negation and exteriorization, that the bar gives birth to the conceptual processes. Twisting the band into the what Leotard calls the theatrical volume, dividing up what takes place on the band into this and not this. The bar, as it cools down, accounts for the series of conceptual frontiers which distinguish the ideal and the real the authentic and the alienated, the useful and the exchangeable, the normal and the perverse, etc. It should be noted that for Leotard, the bar and the band are nevertheless one and the same. When the bar rotates in a furious, aleatory fashion, we have something like the libidinal band. When the bar slows down, we have something like a theatrical volume. Why the bar slows down is a question of peculiar to representational thinking itself, an affect of the cooling bar. So yeah. uh, I think you have you nailed it right on the head, um, Young we don't know what causes the libidinal band to slow down or speed up, mm -hmm. but it's during that process of speed up or slow down, particularly when it's slowing down that we get that theater of representation, you could say, or right. uh, that you create these complex systems, et cetera. And then it's when it's speeding up that you would get, I guess like you could maybe call it the opposite. You would get the libidinal material intensities, I guess yeah. that would be more in line to what I would read out of like Deleuze and Guattari, at least their conceptualization of an intensity. But I think you had it right on the net, on the head right there. That's really helpful. Yeah, that's super interesting. And like when the band speeds up and heats up, it sort of deconstructs the the prior symbolic mm -hmm. or it, the prior signification of a totality. Which uh, yeah, that, that that's super interesting. I was gonna ask Taylor too because that word aleatory comes up a lot. It's interesting. I understand it, and basically, it's like chance. But in French, it seems when I looked it up and looked into it, it's roll of the dice chance. So to speak. yeah, yeah. So uh, if you remember, he brings up, and we could pull this up. I think it's like page three or four into chapter two. He talks about Caesar at the Rubicon, which is like this famous mm -hmm. scene in ancient history, right, where he's kind of told that. You know, with his army, he's not allowed back into Rome. 
And if he crosses, there's going to be that civil war with the triumvirate. And he crosses the Rubicon. He crosses this river, uh, which basically designates his intention, right, to 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 use his uh, not just his his armies because he had more he had a lot of political force too he was very beloved especially at the time so yeah here we go um, he says here we encounter the question of interest for tourism or conquest is interesting interested in so far as the expenditures not only those of equipment and maintenance but also effective expenditures which are eventually very heavy like Caesar at the Rubicon are nothing more than advances and so far then his desire is lost only better recovered so Caesar at the Rubicon says alia yacta est the die is cast. Mm. And so Alia is literally the die or the dice and the game of chance. So something that's yeah. aleatory or aleatory is it's haphazard in a way that uh, involves chance in the, in the highest sense and literally like a rolling of the dice and also taking a chance. So something aleatory when the, that, that just kind of means, and really, I mean, if we're thinking about the bar, aleatory in its furious rotation, that is very much like molecules bouncing. Mm-hmm. And, and so, the temp, you know, we have a concept of absolute zero where molecules are basically their self-vibration in a, in a space. Mm-hmm. Uh, their Brownian motion is, is the most stable in the sense in which it's dead. It's a dead system. There is mm-hmm. no sort of randomness to it, no you know, metastable equilibrium. So yeah, as, as we higher and higher temperatures, we get more and more unpredictable movements. Uh, this fear yeah. is kind of aleatory movement for the molecules. And it is a kind of, uh, it is a kind of freedom on, on the one hand from the molecular standpoint, but it also, yeah. you know, like I brought up last time with, uh, I, I think of the cooling of the bar. If we think of libido, libidinal economy, we're thinking of the velocity and, 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 and intensity and even speed of these exchanges and these movements of intensities. I kind of thought about it last time when, when the analyst is, when Freud specifically is qualifying certain libidos as too viscous, right? And it's like, yeah. they're almost too, too cold and they don't move. No, everything sticks and so nothing sticks. Mm. Uh, and then something that's too viscous, right? It might have might too intense or too um, unbound in a certain sense. It, it, nothing sticks. And so Freud wants that, as I said, that Goldilocks thing. He, he wants it right at, where he can have his... He can have his libidinal band and eat it too, right? He wants to he wants to bring in just a little dose of, of the great zero, uh, but also keep keep the libido, libido flowing in a way that allows for change. And I think that that's really that 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 interesting goal of schizoanalysis when mm-hmm. Therese like be be right on the you know straddle those frontiers, be right on yeah. the uh, on the surface, and and be kind of feeling out the the waves the shock waves like a like a geologist would or something like that yeah that's really helpful etymology too thank you for for going into that that really helps me that's that's super interesting quick question for taylor or i guess i'll open it up for you guys all the way that maybe you guys read it so and then in that sense i guess the way that you described it taylor do you do you guys see it as you know, if the speeding up the, the, the band, you know, leads to higher and higher intensities in a way that can be connected to the schizo, kind of everything signifies uh, in a way. And then uh, as it cools down, you know, you get more of this rigid structuring of these totalizing systems. So now in a way, is this like a micro critique of like a meta, I don't even want to say meta narratives, but like a mera, met, sorry, meta, like the meta narrative of libido itself. Mm. That's interesting. I mean that that's a, that's one way of thinking it. I, you know, bringing up the schizo, obviously, for Deleuze and Guattari, it's about the sort of the very thing that 
at least primitive societies, if not all societies, ward off, which is this unlimited decoding of flows. And so I, you know, I, I think it's interesting to bring in a di dialogue with Leotar, who is talking about um, structuralism, at the, you know, throughout this book, including Levi-Strauss, he's, he's br he brought up Peirce, the semiotics, he's, uh, he's thinking through Saussure, uh, and he's qualifying, you know, these structuralists as basically the enemy, right? As they are, they are trying to, to basically do this thing where the code itself, I mean, they, this is why he goes back to Augustine and these other thinkers, the medieval thinkers, the Victorians, and, and he's trying to say that like, they found a new way to be pious in the same way that Deleuze and Guattari talk about psychoanalysts. Like they, they found a new way to instantiate themselves as priests. And there's oh, this aura of scientificity around linguistics that gives it this, this quote, quasi universalism to kind of insinuate itself in all the disciplines, at least the, the humanities proper. And, and I think that for, for Leotar, this notion that there would be, he brings it up. I forget who he's directly attacking, but like this notion that there would be this code that would precede the message to be deciphered into information with the addressee addresser relationship. And that this code would both be sort of present in each of the series and yet eternally absent, uh, like, you know, uh, preordained by, by God or, you know, with the Victorians, it's basically God in himself, you know, outside of the series yet suffused through it all. I think that notion of this, this ever, ever alighting a code that's both like competently used by the the senders and receivers to decode information but at the same time like not belonging to any of them and somehow like the like the phallus that he brings up like the lacanian phallus it's it's this transcendental signify that's that makes signification in the series the chains of signification possible by its very absence uh, yeah that's that question of you know if the schizo is like on the you know the far side of decoding and then you have the barbarians and the uh and the savages like if that corresponds in terms of of leotard i don't know i mean they they are working with similar sources like pierre Kloster and this question of society against the state that he brings up so they're they're but they're i think their premises and their conclusions are are actually different so this actually gets to this thing where the libidinal economy is like the greatest you know it's, it's a great notion of the dissimilitude, the dissimulation and dissimulation that Leotard talks about because it's so close, it's so very close that it's to, to something like anti-Oedipus that it actually is quite different. And I'm, I think that it's, it's good to keep bringing in the dialogue so that we can be sensitive to, to those differences. And then, sorry, just as a follow-up then, I guess in, in that way, could you see like anti-Oedipus as well, what it is, like, anti, like a critique of you know, Oedip like these Oedipal structures? In a way, libidinal economy is more of like an to be kind of memeish here, uh, like an Oedipal real realism or an Oedipus, <laughs> something like that. You know, it's well, what does he say in that very first paragraph, um, or the very maybe it's the second one? If we if, if we bring up the chapter, I'll, I'll look at it. What does he say? Yeah, at the top of forty four, right? He brings up Freud Lacan, old Husserl, right? You know, he's critiquing. He's already critiquing this Platonism of you know, this, this interior Platonism of, of linguistics. And he says, we say, no, there are only differences. And if there is meaning is because there is a sign. If there is a sign is because there is difference, not just any difference. Whenever passes have absolutely from one element to another, on the contrary, there is an organized voyage from one turn to another in extreme systematic or structural precision. And underneath it all, ultimately, if we have religious souls like Freud or Lacan, we produce the 
image of a great signifier, forever completely absent, whose only presence is absentification, reserve, and relief of the terms make signs of it, substitutes for each other, the image of a great zero, which keeps these terms disjunct, and which we will translate into libidinal economy under the name, unpronounceable, of course, of castrator. So here it's hard to, it's hard to tell, right? If, if he is proposing this, you know, as you say, cute, this, this Oedipal realism as a foil, right? If it's maybe that's what's kind of brought up because it's precisely what with Oedipus blinding himself, it's precisely that recognition that, that, that actually getting that bit of code to decode the chain of events and signifiers that lead to the presence, the very presence in his face of both incest and patricide, like in this, in this Mm -hmm. one kind of intimately conjoined uh, confluence. And it's obviously like his self blinding is his castration, blah, 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 which is, which is this interesting thing where it, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like Leotard is, saying with Deleuze and Guattari, yes, we have to go through Oedipus, but there's more, I think that he's, he's taking up their, their critique of linguistics and structuralism in a way that is his own, and that this is where we, we see that he's not um, necessarily proposing a new type of analytic machine in and of itself, right? He is, uh, in, a, in a different sense, trying to formulate one could even call them these different ways of creating investment machines and disinvestment machines. Oh uh, uh, yeah. I like that. So it's, it's, it's hard to say, it's hard to say if this is a foil or not. And he doesn't, I don't know by this time in the text, has he even said the name Oedipus or has it come up? Not explicitly. All that he's been like hinting at is just like the, the structures themselves. Right. Um, so I guess that's that's the mo- that's the primary reason why I wanted to maybe bring that up or uh, fl- like put it on the table for you guys is just how exactly you guys are reading it because at least to me it seems like it's sometimes a foil. I definitely get where you're coming from, and I don't want to say that he's exactly you know wor- working within this Freudian or Lacanian tradition, but it does seem like he's not going about it the same way that Deleuze and Guattari are. Right. Yeah. I mean, I get the sense that the really Lacan is sort of secondary to Freud in terms of whom he's mm-hmm. sort of the banner that Leotard is camped out under, I think, in terms yeah. of his critique and describing ultimately the libidinal economy via the band and great skin and all of that. Just to kind of like add to that, that's what I, I read it anyway, in terms of like his materialism, it's like, like if these material intensities then, I mean, sorry, no, these libidinal intensities, what exactly do they designate to? And it's like, well, they have to be these real concrete, well, not real in that sense, but these concrete like material objects in a way, um, they don't sign or they don't point to anything because it's, I mean, like what we mentioned in the very first podcast, that sexuality or that sexual element or that erotic element of like an economy, right? Desires, they're, they're material. They're not like, they don't have a, I guess they, they do, but they don't have this explicit like representation or the sign that you point to. It's, mm-hmm. it's precisely because they're desires that they manifest themselves or they're, they're produced um, materially that they create these systems or structures. And then mm-hmm. it's posteriorly, you could, one could say that the system is then interpreted or created to explain those, um, those libidinal s- structures or whatever. It's pretty yeah. Hegelian as well, right? Mm-hmm. I love how he calls uh, Freud and Lacan religious souls. Yeah. 
you know? And I think it speaks a bit to like what Hugh was saying, like he's definitely working. It's not exactly correct to say he's working within the tradition of Freudian or Lacanian psychoanalysis. It's that he's working at like the edges of those traditions. He's trying to like speed up those molecules a little further, which I think is sort of the joke of religious souls like Freud or Lacan, who he says produce this image of a great signifier that's always absent. He's, he's interested in how like Lacan, Freud, or, or any thought system for that matter, sort of draws its own limitations and says, here's, here's the extent to my entire metaphysics of everything. You know, the great signifier, the big other, the whatever you want to call it, is sort of like where they drew their limits. And now the, the goal is to sort of push those limits further, so to speak, to, to heat things up a bit and, and to sort of like detach that religiosity, that religious absence aspect from the analysis itself. So in a way, is libidinal economy then what, if you're using the metaphor of the libidinal band as like an explicit, you know, like the rhizome, that's a thousand plateaus, the mm-hmm. libidinal band is then libidinal economy as a book, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. it's using like, you know, the systemic critique or rationality or whatever you want to call it explicitly, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it's like flushing out a libidinal diagram in a way or like right diagramming those intensities yeah yeah that sounds right because he was definitely drawing on freud and lacan as far as like their topological <laughs> work that i think i brought up quite a bit on in episode one thought it was interesting he he seems on page 45 when he's going through what structuralism does with the sign and mm-hmm. talking about how there's just you know, in going into this perpetual, he calls it the postponement of the signifier. And, you know, obviously Derrida has his notion of deference, which is both difference and deferral, right? In, in French, that word, those words are, 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 are linked. So to differ something is to also to defer it usually in mm-hmm. a more, so that's why he talks about the postponement of the signifier. It's always in this endless, you know, chain. Deference, yeah. Yeah. And, but then down below, he starts to sound a lot like uh, Guattari when he says, this is kind of towards the top middle. He says, there is no sign or thought of the sign which is not about power and for power. The voyage of the search is not the drift of the mad and the plague stricken nor the transpatial exodus of the uncanny. It is the well-prepared flight of the explorer foreshadowing that of the priest, then the soldier and the businessman. It is the avant-garde of capital which is itself already simply capital insofar as the perpetual activity of pushing back its frontiers. Again, that's anti-Edipus theory. Uh, The incorporation of yet more new pieces of the band into its system, but incorporation with a view to revenue to yielding a return. And, you know, in the, in that opening chapter of the machine unconscious quadri, you know, says linguists are, are imperialists. They're not the only ones. They're not the first ones, but that's essentially what's at stake is this kind of territorialization of really um, kind of the, the, the standard movements of, of not just thinking, but obviously this kind of, um, this kind of movement of capital, of, mm-hmm. of incorporating, uh, and you, know, you, you, know, you can imagine what you're saying, like you will be made to signify, you will be adjusted, you will be like, institutionalized mm-hmm. uh, if, for, for lack of grammaticality. And so that's, that, that's also there's a, there's a jurisprudence that's, there's a, there's a flow of like jurisprudence that's already sort of one in the same in this movement of, uh, of exploitation that Leotard is bringing, bringing out here. There's, I think there's also, you can start to see why he would call this 
his evil book or start to see sort of <laughs> the, the, the easy jump you can make to sort of see capital as, you know, what Deleuze and Guattari calling like a deterritorializing force or for Loyotard sort of to see that capital is sort of this very effective mechanism for incorporating the outside into the inside in almost like a radical avant-garde way. And there's this sort of mistake you can make to say, well, then capital is itself a revolutionary force because it's constantly sort of finding something new. That's not necessarily what Loyotard wants to say, but it's an easy jump to make by following his logic. I think the distinction, though, is that he's doing something about sort of the meta dynamics of how the outside is incorporated to the inside or how, you know, philosophy and psychoanalysis conceptualizes itself where deterritorialization might be good as a function, but that doesn't mean that capital is good because it deterritorializes. It's just that capital itself is a, a good example of how deterritorialization or how that function of incorporation can happen. It's sort of like this, this almost metaphorical tool and not something that, well, you could easily do this, but to sort of like make capital into a religion of sorts. You know what I mean? You can fall into that sort of the same religiosity that he pejoratively identifies other philosophers with, with Loyotard himself, and sort of saying that, well, actually, the, the new big signifier is just capital. Yeah, you know, exactly. That's the new thing. Right. It's material, but it's still at the limits of conceptualization that he draws earlier. That's very good. This almost reminds me of Kant Capital and the Prohibition of Incest in the way that it's, you know, as you stated, it's almost always like capital incorporates the outside and it always takes like the foreign in the paper. The way that Land uh, talks about it is that, you know, we always come about the outside as something which we already have our preconceptions about. So that's what he would note as the a priori. In the same way, it's like if we already have this you know, capital, the capital C as like the great revolutionary force, then I guess, I guess I'm confident to side with Lan in that sense that he, that it's like, we haven't overcome this Kantian transcendental limit, or at least this way of thinking, though, I guess like the way that you've, you flushed it out already about like how you totalize like the outside and already incorporate it as part of the right. inside as part of already existing knowledge. So there's nothing ever truly new that that's, you know, that's a whole notion of a synthetic a priori. Mm. Yeah, exactly. He does get into Saad directly a bit later on in the chapter. And I'm also curious, I think maybe the discussion later on in the chapter is more so the Lacan, I forget what the Lacan, the title of Lacan's work with, with Saad. I think it's just Saad. Kant and Saad, oh, yeah, yeah. right? Kant, yeah, Kant, Kant and Saad, I think. Kant, Kant, with, Kant with Saad or Kant avec Saad. That's in a Cree, right? Like one of the... I believe so. One of the first, yeah, Kant yeah, and Saad. Yeah, the old couple. Oh, no, that's the Zizek one on... Yeah, it's uh, it's it's with but Saad, yeah, but it's kind of with Saad. You're right. It's it's a good it's a good essay. I mean, it's I I I think it has a lot. I think it's I think it's a very important essay, and it's one of the more accessible ones for uh, for Lacan. You know, he he does a good job at the the stakes of of um, the question of of like jouissance and the question of being a functionary of the state, and mm-hmm. you know whether one's pleasure quote unquote one's jouissance is related to fulfilling that function or related to this more sadistic you know i take pleasure because i kill not because i'm ordered to kill right Mm -hmm. of the executioner so i I love that essay and um i think it has has a lot to do with what we're seeing in this chapter yeah but khan's whole thing with Saad though is that he as 
like his whole transgressive program or what, if you want to call it that, or like his whole thing with transgression is that he, that transgression is sort of reifying the state or he's more moral in a sense than, or he's the most moral in that sort of framework. Yeah. Through his transgression by like his, a uh, sort of this self-defeating attempt to yeah. transgress by that. That's what sort of reifies this state somehow and i forget yeah there's actually a there's a really interesting book by Giorgio Agamben called the highest poverty where he makes a similar point exactly to what you're saying coop where he he draws on uh the whole book is about like monastic life as the perfect form of life whereas you know your ideas about life get directly translated into action or how to live your life and he talks about how that that concept is shown in its negative when he talks about the Thelemites, who were a religious group that wanted to be completely transgressive, and they basically did like Marquis de Sade style, you know, sexual chaos, so to speak, or at least they they said it was chaos. Or like the Marquis de Sade is sort of like this this supposedly great deterritorialization of you know right. sexual taboos and everything. But Agamben's point is, you know, look at Marquis de Sade, or you know, like. Even I think Pasolini's 120 Days of Sodom is a great sort of translation of this. But these people who are engaging in this like supposedly chaotic sexual energy have have so many rules associated with it. The sort of like complete transgressive action of sort of not having monastic life trying to do its opposite has just as many has is just as much a form of life. It has just as many, if not more, rules about its own chaos than yeah. like a highly formed monastic or like any any form. So the transgression of the form is oftentimes the the sort of reification of those same rules just on the opposite end, like you're saying. Like it could be the state. The complete negation of the state does not fully escape the form that it's trying to. It sort of reifies those forms in in new ways while disillusioning itself or illusioning itself to the fact that it's just chaos or thinking that it's just chaos when in reality it follows strict form. The broad strokes of the book and where it differs from something like Anti-Oedipus is that I don't think Leotard tries to make a judgment that there's a positive expression of desire. So I don't know how that squares with this sort of Sadian reference, because unless it's like this just argument of capitalism as this ultimate deterritorializing force, but having no I don't like that think, sort of being the end, <laughs> like that being it, like it's not, it simply is this deterritorializing force that will dominate or this sort of like imperialistic thing. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I think if I just tying in, sorry, like uh, that sort of tangent about a common thing is like you're saying, like to the outside observer or to the inside observer, I should say, capitalism and the processes of deterritorialization appear to be chaos or just ununderstandable things, the outside sort of making its way on the inside without being comprehended. While at the same time, deterritorialization itself, and I think that's what Loyotard is, is trying to do, is sort of, sort of start to piece out the actual form, the actual process and how it operates, showing that it's not just pure chaos. There are rules, there are right. mechanisms at play here that are understandable, even though they're not understandable right now with our conceptual toolkits. That was sort of the question I was asking in the first episode. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> but I asked, uh, say that again. What I was just saying, the, yeah, yeah. the stuff about form. It's almost like the libidinal economy is sort of trying or is sort of taking seriously the actual form, the actual ways, the process itself, 
trying to understand it instead of just saying, oh, like capitalism just creates chaos. You know, deterritorialization is just complete chance chaos. Instead, okay. it's sort of saying like, even though this thing we identify as, as chaos, like as pure outside, right. we can still, using the limits of our, like our conceptual toolkits, look at it and actually theorize how it operates, just like you could theorize, just, just as the, like, the chaos of sort of sex orgy form is understandable, has a logic to it, even though to the monastic priest, it just seems like pure chaos or pure like the, yeah. the exact opposite of form itself. Okay, so what I was thinking about in, in that context was that's the critique sort of of libidinal economy would be how is there any kind of plane of consistency if it's all just this sort of chaotic deterritorialization process right. force or, or whatever with libido and desire? Like how do we have any stable, if it's all this libidinal economics that are sort of underlying everything, then how do we have any kind of, how is reality not just pure chaos? This, this brings us back to like uh, an interesting concept we find in, in Kant, this notion of, a what does he call it? I think he calls it a renunciglaba, which is basically like a faith of reason or a like a reason or a faith in reason, even if you will. Like we have to have this minimal faith, this minimal belief in the we could just say like the transcendental field created by reason, such that there is you know such that we can even grasp information coming from the minimum faith that keeps all thought and even all like ontology from falling into chaos and just being mm -hmm. randomness. I forget the name of the essay that he, it's probably something really boring, like about the, the faith and the faith of reason, the, this reason faith, this minimal faith. Obviously uh, Kant uses some of that to displace like the, the macro faith that Descartes has to start his system with, with there is a God, he does not deceive, etc. And, you know, Kant wants to prevent that, but obviously um, he's slipping in God through the back door in all different areas, including this little area where, you know, you don't say God, but you might as well just, you know, that you have to have this minimal belief in God so that, <laughs> this, you know what I mean? This creative principle or this organizing principle. Like uh, non. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. So without, without which you would merely have chaos, nothing would cons consist. And for Guattari, he's interested more in like, how we can theorize different regimes of consistency from the abstract to the molecular and the molar, and therefore bypass this question. I mean, he calls it a radically atheist creationism. It's almost this like contradiction in terms, obviously, but for him, the creationism is inherent to this theorization of abstract machines and the plane of eminence and not mm -hmm. to this thing we need to posit beforehand before we can say, Okay, something okay. Consi things consist. Yeah. We can we can think. Mm -hmm. Right, gotcha. But isn't it also precisely because of the I guess like the intensification and the desensification of the band that you have these structures? So like, it's not that you know desire produces that anything goes or whatever or that you have mm -hmm. this pure chaos. It's because you have this pure chaos that can be rendered, you could say, like intelligible through mm -hmm. these systems that you can make them structures or you can even say something like all economies are libidinal. It's precisely because you can have, you know, these structures, uh, you know, Freudian terms, it's, you know, Freud's interpretation of dreams, you know, it's like, do they have a structure? And Lacan's notion of desire 
it's slack. You know, they have these rigid designated systems, but precisely because when the moment that you start overextending those rigid designating systems, that's when you need to, you know, introduce or back end it with affectivity, uh, mm. with libidinal intensities. You need yeah. to provide that support or critique, you could say. Yeah. Now, 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 Coop, you you brought up the tensor. Are we gonna? Do yeah. we want to read through this to, yeah. to make sense of the the, the title do, of the chapter? Yeah, I do want to. Since it's the title of the chapter, and I think it may clarify perhaps some of the later work that he's doing. I think with the Klosowski and and some of the other literary readings or references that uh, Leotard's bringing up. And yeah, because I think offhand, it's not super clear to me necessarily where the tensors, why he chose that title for the chapter, but hopefully this will explicate, open up the floor. The tensor, it is in his description of the tensor that Leotard combats most directly, the nihilism that he takes to be inherent in all semiotics, structuralism in particular. Signs form part of the theatrical dispotif, subordinating intensities, actions, or emotions, for example, to a lack, whether this lack can be considered in terms of a signified or another signifier to which a sign refers in order to have a semiotic value. The sign refers or defeats itself to an el- or defers itself to an elsewhere, constitutively replacing something that's absent for someone. Leotard's wish to reintroduce into the sign attention that prevents it from having either a unitary designation, meaning, or calculable series of such designations or meanings would also be referred to as polysemia as an attempt to block this movement a referral and refrain and remain as faithful as possible to the incompossible intensities informing and exceeding the sign. The tensor sign is a description of this attempt. The latter is not, therefore, a move beyond representation the creation of an elsewhere outside the sign, for the idea of the tensor would then simply repeat the rules of the dispositif, which organizes the possibility of signs in the first place. Signs are also tensors, indissociably singular, vain intensities in flight. Signs dissimulate tensors. I mean, this is pretty cool. I know that in A Thousand Plateaus, which will come out you know, five years later, they also discuss tensors yeah. in terms of language let's see this is yeah the, in the postulate linguistics they'll talk about a cutting edge of deterritorialization of language which is found in the atypical expression and it plays the role of tensor in other words it causes language to tend toward the limit of its elements forms or notions toward a near side or a beyond of language the tensor affects a kind of transitivization of the, fa- of the phrase, causing the last term to react upon the preceding term back through the entire chain. So it, it's, they're thinking about it in terms of like uh, a resonance. And, you know, mathematically, obviously, that's where the term tensor comes from in the 60s. It's, you know, it was kind of coined to build off of this work done in, in vector spaces and things like that. And the best way that I would... I mean, I, I talked to my, my father, a mathematician, and he described tensors in a very like intuitive way to me. But the best way I would think about it is like tensors are, they're describing the, these, these multilinear uh, relations between algebraic objects in a vector space. And so, you know, the basic definition of a vector is uh, this object that 
describes relations that have magnitude and direction, mm -hmm. right? So I think that that's the interesting thing about what Leotard is bringing in here when he's talking about signs and tensors and this question of that it's not just this simple deferral and postponement, right? That there is this, there is this uh, aspect of intensity because you have you have directionality and you have magnitude and you can actually add tensors and vectors together and scale them. And I think that that's what he's thinking of in this, in this way that would keep it from being a mere kind of uh, any sort of either simply linear or simply, um, you know, theologically infused understanding through simulacra, like with Augustine, you know, where it, all the signs are like pointed up towards some absent, present mm -hmm. sign like God or whatever that, that guarantees right. their, their space, you know, as, as Q brought up earlier, this, this is this notion of tensor spaces with signs. It's very much uh, in dialogue with the notion of rhizome and as I, I could see, you know, Leotard and Deleuze just kind of talking about this, probably even like in the mathematical uh, side, because, you know, in difference repetition, Deleuze has got that really deep chapter on the, on the infinitesimal calculus, right? And I can see mm -hmm. them, the two of them nerding the fuck out talking about this <laughs> shit. It's interesting to think about what, trying to relate this to sort of structuralism, and even I think it sort of critiques a part of post-structuralism. So this is sort of like a major metaphor I've used to understand what's what's going on here. So like structuralism being sort of the, in de Saussure's structuralist linguistics, being the argument that language is synchronic instead of diachronic, meaning that like, you know, you can only understand a language when you have like all of its pieces ahistorical to mm -hmm. wherever right. you are. You can only understand words in relation to each other. If you think of language systems as like a solar system, the structuralist project would say, well, look, all of these things we can understand when we map it all out, you know, and that map will be sort of like a one-to-one -one relationship from sign to what is signified. And then you have Derrida, which I would consider post-structuralism to a large extent saying, well, so you have this map and you have this series of meaning, but it's based on centering certain terms, sort of, and by centering them, you're sort of like saying that we know what those are, and that's sort of like the dispositive of those entire system. The planets orbit a sun, right? And the sun is centered. And Derrida would say, well, no, the, the sun isn't necessarily what has to be centered. You can sort of redraw these lines, right? Like there's, there's an infinite amount of play in sort of drawing the connections between these different planets, so to speak, or, or concepts or words. But then there's, there's a further sort of deconstruction or what, what Loyotard is sort of getting at, I think uh, Nick Land described really well in his critique of Derrida in, he has an essay on Trackle's poetry and he describes it as, so keeping with the solar system sort of metaphor, yes, like you can decenter things and draw different meanings given this synchronic system of language and meaning, but all these stars are also intensifying, deintensifying, diffusing, as that's happening. So structuralism, when it says that, you know, like there's a one-to-one -one relation, we can understand the solar system. It can only understand that at one particular moment in time where everything is completely de-intensified. The stars aren't moving. They're not blowing up. They're not doing these things. But sort of the libidinal materialist post-structuralism is sort of revealing that you can never truly map out those stars without, without, making the illusion that they're not moving, so to speak. You can't do it without pretending that the solar system is sort of just a firmament, so to speak. 
even in Derrida's sort of like firmament that can be reconstructed in certain ways is not entirely true. There's another step to say that all of this is dynamic. It's constantly changing in intensity. It's constantly changing in its relation to other objects in the system. And so I, I see it as like, there's one critique of structuralism, but there's even a critique of the Derridian vein of post-structuralism. You know, it's, it's making those signs, it, it's trying to draw attention to the fact that those signs are highly material and highly intense and not just sort of like these, these things that can just have a one-to-one -one signification in an asynchronic system. Does that make sense? That's like my most complex metaphor. I, <laughs> I mean, I think, that's, I think that's, that's helpful. And yeah, the, you'll, you'll see early on in this chapter, I think it was page 47, which is, or page 46 at the bottom, right below where he talks about Caesar at the Rubicon. He says, another consequence then, with the sign, if we have intention and postponement, we also have the opening up of diachrony which is only a drawing out of the tense of the compact immobile tensor into an always past and a still to come and even now and a not yet into the game of deep presence, the very game of semiotic nihilism. And then he goes on about the side. But, um, but yeah, that, that notion of a, of a semiotic nihilism is, is interesting coming from, from him. And he'll, you know, he'll, he'll definitely later on, he'll bring up Augustine again in his, dispute or his diatribe against Pharaoh and you, you kind of see replayed seemingly this fight between Plato and the sophists, right? With Augustine and Vero, it, it is about this, also this question of a political future for Rome or for the Roman people out of this kind of pagan, this pagan past. And like the only true kind of future has to be guaranteed in a, in a new theory of language grounded in this idea of, of simulacrum, of similitude, anchored in in God or the Godhead, the Great Zero, I guess. Have you guys read the case of Dora? Have you guys yeah. read this this case that that he's talking about with Freud? One of his one of his first. Yeah, I wrote my my thesis, my master's thesis on. Case Hell yeah! Well, that's that's good. Um, <laughs> that that's I uh, I remember studying this in a psychoanalysis class. And uh, I really do think that this is inter what's interesting about the case. I think here that I would bring up with Leotard talking about the hysteric body and the and the kind of the signs of the of the body, um, like her coughing, etc. What I think, what I learned from Freud about Freud in his writing of the notes most was that I don't think until this case study he really had a solid grasp on conceptualizing counter-transference. Yes. He may have been aware of it, but he seems to, he may have been aware of it like intuitively, but this, it does seem to be where he finally is able to kind of articulate it and at least acknowledge that it, it that it is working, that there is, yeah. that there is this counter-transference from the analyst back onto the analysis and, and I think that that's where I would, I would bring that up only to try to point towards point towards this uh, case, this, this, the Schraber case, right? This question of, of Schraber and the solar anus and wanting to repopulate humanity by, by sort of giving birth to, uh, to God's children. Right. And, and the, and the Dr. Fleshig. So you got Schraber and Fleshig and, and Leotard seems to try to dramatize both Schraber's uh, transferences, but also this, you know, the singular proper name of Fleshig and, you know, it's conjunction with God and these other things and how there is uh, potentially this, 
this also this countertransference going on mm-hmm. and this this little so I like how Leotard kind of brings up Schraber to work through some of the some of the same things he's already been critiquing in terms of theology, in terms of like Augustine and Vero and and the Roman theology and all this stuff. Yeah. What did you guys think about the the Schraber stuff? I mean, it's another tie to anti Oedipus, obviously. Just a footnote too, when you're talking about countertransference, the the Freudian idea of countertransference being the like imposition on on the patient by the analyst their own like emotional or conceptual sort of understanding that's not that's sort of like they're imposing their own emotions or thoughts right. about the case onto the patient just to footnote it yeah and it, and it forms a i mean watery talks about it in terms of a transferential assemblage right there is mm-hmm. this assemblage that's 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 kind of has a life of its own you know that takes on a life of its own as as these libidinal investments get get put into the the talking cure and the mm. and the whole montage the whole setup of the of the the whole scenery right of the staging of of like uh of the unconscious uh revealing itself and i think that that's kind of why with straber we have something i mean that that's so unprecedented in terms of i mean it, it, it's obviously got, you know, it could have a fresh, a full-fledged, like, Foucauldian reading. I'm sure there's, like, a million of them out there. Because it is this guy who uh, who is well-to-do. He has, he's, he runs his own affairs, like, financially fine, right? But he has this, this intense, obviously for him, real experience and belief and uh, and faith in this future to come that, that he's yeah. going to be the, the mother of, of creation. And so yeah. he's institutionalized, but he's not, he's obviously in all other aspects of his life, he's obviously very cognizant of his affairs. He's able to, yeah. to as I said, he's able to run his household and he's able to, you know, uh, be a, a, a well-adjusted citizen in all these other aspects, even to the point of being able to write his own memoirs and to be able to articulate this, this complex. And yet, you know, and yet he is sort of, deemed unfit for you know freedom outside of these institutions and so there is this interesting singularity uh there's also a kind of injustice done to him uh, as well and that's that's why i think this this interesting you know leotard is fascinated with this question of what what's behind schraber's stupidity of being too stupid to to shit right Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. which is uh, yeah he was very he had a lot of libidinal investment in his anus in constipation and the diarrhea that was like right a major part of his well that gets back to the to the intensification and disintensification of the bar mm-hmm. right or the, the the viscous the viscous libido versus the uh the libido that, that that's too uh too fluid right nothing yeah nothing can stick so yeah the the different flows the 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 blockage of the flows and the and the overflowing yeah. So yeah, on 57 at the bottom, that's where the pen almost shrinks from recording so monumental a piece of absurdity as that God, blinded by his ignorance of human nature, can possibly go to such lengths as to suppose that there can exist a man too stupid to do what every animal can do, too stupid to be able to shit. I think it was interesting what you were saying earlier about countertransference, because I think that the Schrieber case is very interesting when thinking about libidinal economy, because it it's sort of a case of countertransference that leads to a libidinal misinterpretation. Being mm-hmm. like one of the major things is Freud thinks that 
Schreiber, one of his things is because he saw he used to sleep as a baby where his parents had sex. Right. And, and thinks that that's probably sort of like libidinally responsible for something. But it's actually, well, at least we're fairly certain that that's a major countertransference on Freud's part because Schreiber grew up in like a different part of Austria or a different part than what Freud is from. Mm-hmm. And that particular culture didn't have the baby sleep with them at night. They would be in a separate room. But Freud sort of makes this countertransference of like how German babies are raised, how he was raised. Being like, uh-huh. oh, this, he probably saw his parents having sex early uh-huh. and now I can draw this like libidinal connection right. between right. this and that. But it shows that libido is always far more complicated and far more intense than the libidinal interpretation of it. You know, right. we're, always, we're always kind of putting a countertransference of sorts. Countertransference in this case just being the limits of our own knowledge to understand libido sort of mis- leads us to misinterpret the intensity of what we're feeling. Yeah, it's a kind of horizon of prejudice that, that comes mm-hmm. to blind oneself and comes to like kind of cover over everything. And I, I do think it's interesting you bring that up because Freud is always seemingly in search of this primal scene where right. the, the, the where like the trauma of becoming an ego, becoming a sexuated body, etc., uh, can explain through this latency period of, you know, adolescence to the, the sort of rush of hormones and the possibility of reproduction, it can tell the tale of the pathologies of, of the subject in question. And I think that that has, goes back to why Leotard keeps bringing up this, this language of, of setting a stage, of, of, of a scenery, of a, of a theatricalization that not only linguists perpetrate, but also you know, already what Freud and, and, and even Lacan will, will fall back on. Uh, and so there's this, this question of, of the scenery that mm-hmm. would dominate that, that initial trauma to explain it all. Again, I think that that's, I think that Freud, obviously there's that, there's that kernel of truth Mm-hmm. Um, and yet there is this misapplication or this, or this, right. or this overestimation or this, again, as you said, bringing in these, these unconscious biases and prejudices from right. his own life and overcoding. Uh, because yeah. if, I, if I remember correctly, he doesn't work with Schreber personally, right? He just reads right. the memoirs. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, already there you have, you get that one distance removed and you got to fill in that, that kind of lack of direct access. Uh-huh. And, and, and so, you know, I'm sure that, you know, it's not like, oh, Freud fucked up. It's like, how, how could any of us not in that setting and in with the stakes so high, right? With this, it's still, I mean, psychoanalysis at the time was still in, in its early infancy. So you have to take these risks um, how, how would anyone not fail to, to bring in one's own sort of angles and, and ways of, you know, understanding ourselves and sort of plate it on in different areas and cover over uh, a lot of things that, that just would seem very absurd to any everyday human being. This, you know, this, the, the, I think that there's, there's something very explosive about Schreber's disruption of binaries that Leotard is going through, right? The, yeah. the, the body man, body woman, etc. This, um, I mean, that's, this is on the same page, right? Where he says, second remark, this stupidity turns up again in the strange notion of femininity implied. Well, I guess that might be the next page. Sorry, that's 58, my bad. 
implied by Schrager's text quoted above, it is there, it is, there is woman rather than being woman. This there is being indifferently translated by behave like the woman in coitus and also behave like this woman's man playing the part of a woman lying in my own sexual embraces. And then at the end, he, he's talking about fleshing as the predicate of several statements which apply that under it, incompossible pulsions are activated together. Shall we say that, right? And he says, Fleshig loves me since he makes me shit come. Fleshig hates me since he forbids me to shit come. I love it that Fleshig should hate me because my own persecution is necessary in order that I may accomplish the salvation of future humanity. Mm-hmm. I hated that Fleshig loves me for I would like defecation to be as natural for me as it is for others. So you do have this, again, this, um, this sort of disjunction that's going on at the same time and it causes Schraber to be uh, as he says above, a body without regulated organic functions, a sexless or multi-sexed body. Right? It, it is that both at the same time, although that or gets established, that, that exclusive disjunction gets established with the cooling down of the, of the bar and the band, etc. How much does this have to do with something like, and Proust and Simon Deleuze is saying, don't, you know, don't mistake the signs for this signified? Is there a similar relation with transference? Or am I, being, is that that's, too I mean, that's interesting. Simplified? I mean, that's, it's, I think that, that in Freudian language, it might be something like don't mistake one's own, one's own symptoms, i.e. one's own ontogenesis, phylogenesis of our mm-hmm. psychical apparatus, the whole, the whole history of, of, of events that, that, that sort of make us quote unquote well-adjusted egos and then universalize that right because i right. think that i think that that's part of why oedipus is constitutes this this pinnacle of 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 sort of freudian universalism where it is about saying okay i found i trace back to its origin the 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 plight of you know destined for all all men and therefore disjunctively all women uh this question of a sort of overthrowing the primordial father, but at the same time in that very act, like establishing this, this law that that, 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 that shall never be possible again. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this, this question of, I think that, that with Freud, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, he, he realizes, you know, that uh, I think in that, you know, you see that, that his own self-analysis and his own ways of relating to that, that his formation of his psychical apparatus, it's not, it's easier if it were, because then psychoanalysis would have an Archimedean lever to, right. to sort of lift all of the, the weight for every patient. And so there is something admirable and, and, and really ambitious with Freud wanting to, 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 to stake the, the wager on Oedipus. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that, failure to consider that libido desire the ontogenesis the psychogenesis of a of an individual is not so easy and not so simple and and this is i think partly why Deleuze and Guattari start with machines they start with even like the basic machine the the social mega machine which has men as parts and they and they go through how you know psychic and social repression are interweaved and that you know the the and that the the sort you know the family nuclear mommy daddy me triangle is this freudian less fantasy but more of mm-hmm. a an expedience right it's yeah. an expedient to reduce everything to those relations and not to consider the openness in 
you know, that we're already sort of assailed from the outside, even if we're right. remote and, and never see another person, there is still this kind of transcendental field of, of strangers. And Robinson Crusoe is where I would go with, with that. Or uh, yeah. what you guys have seen Castaway, right? That's a whole like libendal monograph or whatever. Um, anyway, through Freud's expediency, he's sort of trapped us in the, the scene of Oedipus. Mm-hmm. You know, we can only act out our libidos in this very limited space that Freud sort of opened up as the entire possibility of libidinal interpretation. And people like Loyotard and Deleuze and Guattari are trying to leave the theater or just build a new one with whatever representation they can. But it's, it's pretty incredible how Oedipus has come to be so almost totalizing in its role for interpreting our desire and our libidos. It's like trying to get rid of that like indispensable node, right? So it's like this, just that structure, that very structure that already confines or limits libido to like, as you already mentioned, like the theater or like this play that we are already within. Misona scene. <laughs> I was talking about the etymology of libido. It basically is related to the word for love. And, um, and Freud popularized it after, but which I haven't read. Have you guys looked at uh, any of Psychopath Sexualis? I only know about it secondhand. Mm-mm. Okay. Yeah. Who wrote it? Freud? Oh, uh, no. Kraft Ebbing. Um, just, it's a famous book that basically details quote unquote sexual perversions in a, in a, well, now pseudo medical context, but in the, you know, it, it's, its intention was to be, you know, um, Wait, what was it? What is it called? Psychopathia sexualis. So P.S. Was that, when was that written? Uh, 92, 1892 is what it says here. Although that's the English, maybe that's... Yeah, I was going to say, is, is that the... Because I think I did hear, but I only passively in my history of sexuality class. Mm-hmm. There was like a Victorian era book that they try to like classify. Like they even try, like this sort of term, maybe not explicitly, but homosexuality comes from now. Uh, it does. Like it's early origins. Yeah, it has a special emphasis on male homosexuality the antipathic instinct (laughs) um (laughs) it was published in german in 1886 so i guess it's translation into english is six years later in 1892 (laughs) it's basically one of the first texts about sexual pathology with the subtitle quote with special reference to the antipathic sexual instinct so its main uh subject would be then about homosexuality, male homosexuality. It's um, it's one of the earliest works on homosexuality. And it concludes that most homosexuals have a mental illness caused by degenerate heredity. Now, I think if Freud even, if Freud ever cites this book, um, and I don't remember if he does, but obviously in the three essays on sexuality, which I talked about last time, his main wager is that... Um, different perversions, whether it be homosexual or not, are not about heredity, right? It's not about a kind of genetic phylogenesis and destiny, but about we have to understand psychogenesis, right? We have to understand where we start off as infants. We're polymorphously perverse. We don't have like erogenous zones that are centered around the genitals. Like the whole body is is a, a, a conflux of, of partial objects that all have equal erogenous um, value. Potentiality. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then it's it's only later as we 
quote unquote become a person as as you know we don't we're not born with an ego right as as we the cycle apparatus starts to form that that we can then say we those Raja stones more and more become centralized around the around the genitals and but Freud still wants to say that's not necessarily just a biological you know function it's it, like it, um, it's also sociological have you seen there's a clip that's kind of a meme where Jordan Peterson tries to talk about how um like why he thinks like the foot fetish is a thing and then he's like well the like the region of the brain that's like um there's a region of the brain that's like responsible for like like foot feeling or mobility or whatever it's like really close to like the erogenous zone like in the brain or whatever and so he's like that's that's where it comes from and blah blah it's like it's like bro it's it reminds me of that thing that you mentioned last time about like the nose uh, how i had a like connection to the like the it's called like the like you know the penis or whatever and it's like bro you're extending this analogy (laughs) way too far yeah uh reflexology and shit (laughs) yeah right and (laughs) You know, you know, what's interesting, <laughs> Freud talks about noses and shit. And, you know, when, when I was reading the Schraber thing, I had to go back to Antiepis where they talk about the anus is the first organ to be privatized, right? That it's yeah. disinvested collectively and made private, you know, because I don't know if you guys saw that little quote I had from Antiepis the other day about women riveted with vaginas, a big collective penis for the men. You know, they, they talk about the anus... The privatization of the anus to be sort of extracted from the collective social field is the model upon which the phallus, et cetera, and, and then capital or money because of the flows of money, uh, they, they kind of take on after this model. And, and I, I almost feel like it's, it, it allows them to end either that paragraph or the next with the Artaud quote that all writing is pig shit. Right. They, yeah. <laughs> and I'll, I can't tell, right. If they, how, you know, serious they are about, or if it's just a big, big joke, or both, right? Or if it's kind of both. Uh, I think that when they tell jokes, sometimes I, you know, I feel like it's a, it's a rarity. So where were we? I guess we were just kind of floating. We were, we're riffing a little bit on Schreber, pre- yeah, predominantly. Yeah, we were talking about Schreber, right, and Freud. Yeah. The other thing about the Schreber case, and I think this can go hand in hand or start a conversation about the idea of simulation and yeah. sort of the, yeah, the, the thingness of signs. I think what's interesting about Schraver and about sort of like schizophrenia say generally is it's sort of the outside making its way into the inside. And that's why schizophrenics I think are sort of relegated to the outside of society. I think the sort of schizophrenic impulse is very much ahead of its time in that it's it's a logic and it's a systematizing that is only in reference to itself. It's almost like the fourth level of simulation that Baudrillard talks about, or even Loyotard, where the sign has no reference to like what was originally being referred to. I think the schizo and Schreber, it sort of like scares us being like society itself when dealing with these this type of logic because it's sort of at the highest level of simulation where we don't really have anything to grab onto and say, Oh, I know what you're talking about. Like this referent we both share. The schizo is sort of trapped in the pure materiality, the pure like thingness, this representing itself of language, you know, perpetual signification in a way. 
constantly making connections to that whole meme. It's like the schizo sitting in the corner of the room, excited that, you know, they saw the number 13 because it connects to yeah. blah, blah. <laughs> like making a whole sensical worldview out of that. It's like completely logical, completely structured, but it only makes sense in, in their own self-referential order right of science and it's almost like a hyperbolic version of all logic and representation too it's just that we sort of are better at freud called it in like the dream the idea of a stopgap sort of like we were talking about earlier the sort of like illogical hole in the dream that you can't really explain but holds the whole thing together that that sense of suspense and the schizo is just like has that stopgap and to us it seems so apparent because it doesn't make any sense to us but in when we see ourselves reflected in that, we sense that fear that there's always a stopgap in our own worldview, our own interpretation of ourselves and of, of the world. I think Freud even brings it up. Let me search. I think the word is called Ananke, but it's this, yeah, Ananke Stenai, um, which is like, it's got to stop at some point. I know Aquinas brings it up, but he gets it from Aristotle that like, mm. that like to prevent thinking to have this infinite regress there has to be a stopping point there has to be something that and i think that that brings us brings me back a little bit to what Kant talked about you know with the the faith of reason right that there mm-hmm. that's like the minimal stopgap to 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 allow consistency uh of thought yeah and i could have sworn freud uses a non-k in the notion of a non-k in beyond the pleasure principle, but maybe now I'm, no, it's in civilization and it's discontents. Okay. Mm. That's, he, is it, Ananke is force, constraint, necessity. And obviously in this text, the notion of force and, uh, you know, Ian Hamilton Grant, he, he's oftentimes translating puissance instead of as power, as, as force. And what does he say? He says, Freud says, we can only be satisfied, therefore, if we assert that the process of civilization is a modification which the vital process experiences under the influence of a task that is set for it by eros and instigated by ananke, right, which is mm. necessity or force, or by the exigencies of reality, and that this tax, task is one of uniting separate individuals into a community bound together by libidinal ties. Mm. Well, I almost feel like that sentence begs to be you know, actually doesn't say a lot. It requires a, a lot of unpacking there, but it obviously follows from Freud, the way he starts off the book by basically saying like sort of civilization got us past, uh, you know, some of the, the basic threats to our life. And, and so that's kind of why men banded together in the first place. But uh, yeah, he, he doesn't, he doesn't go back into the killing the primordial father as much in that book. That's almost assumed, I think. Hoop, uh, was it you that last time brought up how, what is Baudrillard's book called? Symbolic Exchange Symbolic and Death. Symbolic Exchange and Death, yep. That mm. that one is Baudrillard's attempt at kind of like this type of theory. was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's this sort of, it's this confluence of semiotics, political economy, and um, what else? What else would you call it? I guess psychoanalysis? Yeah. Right, we've got what, uh, anti-Oedipus in 72, this in 74, and then symbolic exchange and death in 76. And I think you can even see the influence slightly here on Baudrillard, and I think in particular in the discussion of simulacra. Yeah. And I think that's actually where Baudrillard really gives the best layout of, of simulacra, 
or simulation mm-hmm. as well, rather than the the book, the popular book that everyone yeah. seems to read, which I think is like kind of meh. <laughs> it's definitely not his best book at all. No, yeah. But you see a lot of overlap for sure, um, at least in terms of just the general, like I said, that kind of three-pronged approach of psychoanalysis, sem- psychoanalysis semiotics, and you know, more or less like a rough political economy. I like, uh, I think this is page 69, which is kind of awesome. He says at that bottom paragraph, and I'll wait on you. This is where he brings up Augustine. I'll just read a little bit. simulacrum? Yeah, he says this is where the Augustinian thesis of the simulacrum takes up its position, the thesis of generalized similitude, that is to say the basis of every semiotics or at least every metaphorics. Everything is what it is because each thing resembles another thing, and given this, there must be a resemblance, a similitude, by participation in which all similar things are similar. You know, and he says, Augustine calls this relationship, it's the word, and obviously you have that that trinity of the Holy Spirit, Son, and the Father, all that. I like this, obviously what I like in Leotard pointing this out and putting this forward is that he, this critique and obviously I didn't read that here, but he's obviously critiquing Augustinian semiotics uh, in this theological vein, this nihilistic the- theology. He is n- doing this kind of stuff, obviously gets him in the same league as as Deleuze in different repetition, but also uh, with Foucault, right, in the order of things. And, mm-hmm. and, and so, like, I, I feel like this kind of, whether we call this post-structuralism or not, which is a you know, which I don't think necessarily is, is helpful here. I mean, but this mm-hmm. critique of structuralism is at least paves the way for that or continues that in a different vein than what we already see. And, uh, and the other thinkers I brought up, I think it's funny that this quote here, he says the sun or word is the simulacrum in itself. If it's, if it is true that the image or the simulacrum relationship between the two terms has to be one, not only of similitudo, but of endanger of engenderment. The son, exactly like the father, is also what emanates from him. I don't know if this is, but there's that Baudrillard quote, the simulacrum is never that which conceals the truth. It is the truth which conceals that there is none. The simulacrum is true. And I'm like wondering if Baudrillard like, was inspired by that very sentence or something. Well, he definitely draws on Augustine, you know, that, that original theory of simulacrum. Plato had a simulacrum discussion mm-hmm. as well right or am i am i wrong no, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i think deleuze is the one that uses that if, if i'm remembering correctly that definition of simulacrum is that um, a difference in repetition it could be an essay that he writes oh. or that he wrote separately i think um, it's uh it's a it's 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 an appendix to logic and of sense logic Ooh. yeah that's the one you're talking about yeah, it, it's it's Plato's Sophist where he brings up the the two different ways of making images, and uh, but obviously, like whether or not he uses that word, the theory of of simulacra is is pretty much all throughout Plato. You can see it in the reasoning for why he you know kicks out the the poets mm-hmm. and the and the other artists from from the Republic, which is really funny because that's like the last section of symbolic death and ex- or symbolic exchange and death is all <laughs> sort of poetics as this praxis against the state or capitalism or whatever. Like that's his program is sort of revolves around poetics entirely. I was just going to mention, I mean, that just reminds me of the thing that we brought up last time um, about how uh, Leotard is, Leotard, Deleuze and Guattari are all writing as, 
you know, using like the text itself as a revolutionary force. So Baudrillard's mm-hmm. just following in that same line of flight, you could say. I think maybe yeah. the place to wrap up, because I think it has a lot of red meat in terms of actually interrogating libidinal economy through the through like sex work and prostitution is kind of a large focus of the book or this mm-hmm. chapter of the book, I think. So just to draw on this chapter where he, or this paragraph where he's talking about Mary Magdalene. The prostitute accepts prostitution in the name of a superior interest. She wants it and is thus very much the same as a martyr. She testifies through her humiliation. Magdalene is Jesus. She begins by testifying against her savior. The dissociation of the two instances is still too far. It's still far too naive in terms of its affects. It is God to whose eyes suffering is exposed and to whose heart it is offered in terms of political economy. It is the pimp here, Flakes Herod or Pilate, who makes more money from the suffering, drawing a profit from it and thus ignoring it as such. That was good about Christ prostituting himself. The stuff mm-hmm. about the Antichrist was interesting as well. Later on, he's drawing this metaphor, or even here too, like he's brings it up really briefly. Magdalene is Jesus. Jesus is prostitute and there being sort of an equivalency there in that relationship between pimp and prostitute and I guess God the Father and and Jesus. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. He goes really quickly from... From the prostitute to the martyr to Jesus, right? It's it's yeah. a it's a pretty seamless uh, step he's taking. Exchange is big here, but I don't know exactly where that leads us. But I don't know this. I feel like this is one of the passages or the, one of the areas where he's getting most into this notion of libidinal exchange. And this is under the section "Use Me" as well. I think in particular, maybe to I'll read this too. In the dead of the night, in the utter exhaustion of palms and expressions, penis and vulva in rags, the earth indiscriminately scorched, this order may yet issue from the depths of a woman's horse and throat, use me. And this means there is no me. Prostitution is the political aspect of dependency, but it also has a libidinal position besides. This is what Saad overlooked. The question of passivity is not the question of slavery, the question of dependency, not the plea to be dominated. There is no dialectic of the slave, neither Hegel's nor the dialectic of the hysteric, according to Lacan, both presupposing the permutation of roles on the inside of a space of domination. This is all macho bullshit. Use me tends towards the direction of the erect member above the loins, the illusion of power, or the relation of domination. I don't know if it's in this work or not. I can't remember. But when Leotard talks about like passivity, that usually gets tied to like some regards into like uh, like Stoic philosophy about, you know, kind of like how to survive like these forces of capitalism, which then ties directly into what people usually call like Leotard's accelerationist undercurrent, which yeah. is, you know, you, you become so capitalist or whatever that I guess like cap, uh, accelerationism in the bulger sense where it's like you become so capitalist that capitalism can't even like the logic of capitalism doesn't make sense for that. And I, and part of me wonders how much of this in terms of like prostitution is a setup for the notion, at least in like Marxist analysis or critique, which it's like the, the, the proletariat is oppressed, you know, but how much of this oppression is desired? Uh, yes. Consciously, or, consciously right. perhaps. I think that's maybe yeah. the big distinction too is like, because that's the famous quote from the book is, about the steel workers in England um, enjoying 
getting jouissance from the destruction of their bodies working in the steel mills. So I think maybe you're right. He's setting up that metaphor for this sort of this libidinal transgression that he's he's not really making a judge. I don't know. It's not a repressive force. Like, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's interesting how he says in that sentence, like the passion of passivity is not one single force, but it's force itself. You know, just to go to what you're saying, like pure passivity is just pure, I don't know, like release to force itself or what's the better way to put it? Like not sacrifice, but it, it is like being a martyr to force itself, to not put up a fight in, in any regard to try and dominate the force itself. Yeah. To kind of, uh, what is it called? Um, like allow a flow in a way. Like- right. Succumb. I'm trying to think of like the perfect... <laughs> word for what i was trying he says here, the, the passion of passivity which stimulates the offer is not one single force a resource mm-hmm. of force in battle it is force puissance itself liquidating all stasis which here and there block the passages of intensity which is exactly yeah what you were going to i think mm-hmm. so would that be like i guess like coming from 68 would be like not a revolutionary force that's against it but you know to use that quote it's like not to not to withdraw from the world market but to yeah um, accelerate it or <laughs> maybe know, the flows go. are not decoded yet or not yeah. what, what is it what is, maybe Perhaps the flows are not yet deterritorialized enough <laughs> which is like yeah exactly it's like um don't create a blockage instead going through capitalism not opposing yeah. it but I don't know. I think that just, I think you brought it up. I think he is just setting up some crumbs for what's to come in l- later on in the book. But at the same time, I'm like, how much of this do you guys think is also just a criticism of theology and their Catholic underbringing for a lot of these philosophers? I don't know. Maybe that's just... Maybe that's another small aspect of, of the evil book. Taken more literally, right, of this carrying on. I mean, he mentioned Saad and the, um, how's it translated? It's like... Yet again, Frenchmen, if you want to be Republicans, right? Where he's basically saying we got to get rid of the Catholic Church and all its fucking like fetters on our political, uh, you know, collective society as a whole. We got to root it out and extirpate it, including its whole, not just its rituals, but its, its, its Judeo-Christian moralism. It's holding us back as being truly, you know, citizens of a free society. And so, so yeah, I wonder if, if some of that is, you know, which is why Leotard, you know, what Coop read, it says, like, this is something Saad overlooked. Like, he's obviously turning to Klosowski and Saad and, um, and even Freud and these other thinkers and, and trying to articulate a kind of, obviously, like a kind of libidinal atheism, if you will, right? This, this unmooring of, of the, the libidinal flows from their source in some sort of transcendent, well, really, it's also what he'll call meta-narratives, right? God is mm-hmm. just, or the Catholic Church provides one of those safe and very well spread out through imperialism and these other things historically, but this, you know, mass disseminated sort of ways of fitting in, be it doc- dogma and doctrine, fitting into this collective body that supposedly has not only its autonomy, but its hierarchy, and it has uh, the access point through which we have to go to either commune with God or to 
or to gain, you know, through a priest, our uh, salvation through repentance, etc. Right. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it, 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 I mean, the Catholic church itself has functioned as that exclusionary device too, right? Because the threat of excommunication is supposedly, at least theoretically, dogmatically, the threat of eternal damnation. So it is that choke point of um, societal, especially, you know, I mean, I suppose in the 70s, things would have been more quote-unquote liberal, but but even after, even in the 1770s and 1780s, after the French Revolution, you see that the Catholic Church is not so easy to to overthrow, and it's still it's still mm-hmm. a standard in um, traditional French culture. And so, yeah, yeah. I, I think you're onto something there. With and this is interesting that he's he doesn't really even mention the Catholic Church, but he's going back to one of its founding fathers with with Augustine and mm-hmm. and taking beef with him. So there is this interesting displacement of a more direct attack on the very like sub foundations of European Christian theology. So it's like just a meme. Uh, libidinal theology or crypto libidinal theology, <laughs> um, like a critique of crypto libidinal theology already within libidinal economy. In a way, I guess just to kind of salvage something out of that meme, um, like if the at least like if you take Deleuze and Guattari's work as um, as a critique of you could say like the state itself, right? Like that mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a metaphysical it's a metaphysical project of attacking the state or like the structure of the state in a way of you could say like the mind that's structuring would then libidinal economy be the same thing but the state isn't just to be so literal you know like the actual government or the structuring of a government but it's also you know the the you know god the state the church that whole that whole chain of signification you can maybe sum it up that way I like how you put that, like the, the argument being made, I think you're right, it's like a metaphysical argument with political implications. Mm-hmm. It's, it's highly metaphysical in that there's, there's several different applications that, that exist beyond just the political scene or the economic scene. With Deleuze and Guattari, it's like if with the whole notion of virtuality, it's like if the idea is just as real as like the actual material constitution of that object or whatever you want to call it. The idea itself is Leotard not doing the same thing, but with like libidinal intensities. Then if like, mm-hmm. if the state is, if the state itself, if you know, objects of oppression are created through libidinal intensities, things that we desire, it's like those systems or those structures, they are created precisely because, you know, it's like, okay, well, what, what do, what do people desire? It's like, um, mm-hmm. they want to go to like that, the whole quote about the pubs, the, the mill yeah. workers, they want to go, they don't care about destroying their bodies because yeah. they desire an identity. They, they desire an identity outside of their uh, peasantry class, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a lot of ways, it's like, we make these, metaphysical structures real we actually impose them in the real world not because the structures precede the actual material objects but because the material objects themselves or these material systems in a way that they're working at the same time right like the ultimate metaphysical object is the state itself and vice versa the state itself is Mm -hmm. that oppressive structure in our mind that indispensable node that we can't get rid of kill the fascist in your head exactly exactly what about this paragraph? I think this goes to a little bit more of the, like the the literal sort of exchange, but in the context, I think of this 
this relationship between, I guess, pimp and, and prostitute, it must be related to the particular peculiar status, rather, of the criminal. He's at the same time both pimp and client, or rather, neither one nor the other. The pimp brings the partial pulsion of the client back into the bosom of the ghost body of society under the form of the monetary equivalent. The client, in consuming his pulsional energy in the production of his phantasms with the help of the prostitute, produces a libidinal equivalent of currency. But it is essential that the criminal leave the system of equivalence between the pulsion and the money. If money remains present in its libidinal countency, it is no longer as the substitute or the simulacrum. It comes under the headings of a region of the body, which can no longer be then the alleged social body but necessarily the great libidinal skin, which, like any other, can and must be grasped by the libido and be submitted to its consumatory irradiation. Currency, language itself, become the object of the libertine's maneuvers in the same way as is the body. Like, I think this is interesting in this, this sort of dyadic or dyad-like nature of the, of the criminal He's bringing the partial pulsion of the client back into the bosom of the ghost body of society under the form of monetary equivalent. And the client, in consuming their pulsional energy in the production of his phantasms with the help of, of the prostitute, produces a libidinal equivalent of currency. Now, it's, it's, of- interesting. it's interesting where it goes from talking about the pimp, right? Institutes the, the exchange of money, and then the client is the, the exchange of uh of, of the the drive energy or the pulsion energy right but then it but then it's unclear is the criminal the pimp is it the prostitute is it neither is it the client right would all three be on the outside of or out of the transgressing uh, legal parameters i mean obviously like in some societies today you know like in canada you have a legit way of doing it even if you might have illegal forms of prostitution as well but you know um I'm wondering there the slipperiness of that term of who's the criminal are, are yeah. all three criminal. Right. So yeah, the criminal leaves the system of equivalence between the, the pimp it's made up by the pimp prostitute client triangle. So the criminal seems to be a, a fourth class, mm-hmm. a totally more generic uh, class. So, criminalis. <laughs> right. There you go. So there, so the criminal leaves the system. Now, Again, it's it's a little strange here. So he's both pimp and client, or not, or rather, neither one nor the other, right? It's it's this. I think there's a lot of that to like Leotar. This both at the same time, but also both not at the same time. Maybe I should read this as well. To I think this is going on along the same lines. It is precisely when the pimp establishes a relationship between perversion and the social body, between the tensor sign and the intelligent sign, and he thus proves to be the only really institutive connection of the negotiating body itself, that the criminal is used as disconnection. The withdrawal of his fortune and its squandering to the ends of the untransmittable pleasure are provocations destined to give rise to the alternative before the dissimulation or duplicity of signs necessarily invests a politics of the libido. Either recognize that the repudiation of complete monstrosity by institutions is reversed into the into de facto prostitution, material and moral, admitting therefore that the generalized system of commodities is the system of prostitution under the cover of the trade of objects and services and nothing else besides, or affirm that there is only one authentically universal communication 
the exchange of bodies by the secret language of bodily signs, of which Saad's woman criminal provides the principle and illustrates one effect, the effect of insurrection or perpetual shaking of the circle of exchanges by the passions to speak in the manner of Blanchot. He brings that prostitution metaphor into the whole general exchange of commodities. He goes on, though, I think this might help perhaps clear this up too, is it is from posing the libidinal political problem under this alternative. Either the communication of beings through the exchange of their bodies called perversion or prostitution under the sign of dead currency, which is capital. In any case, mercantilism that Klosowski forges his impossible fiction of a living currency. So either perversion or prostitution. And I suppose he would want to be like, it's both at the same time, but neither. I mean, in that, in that sense, Leotard is already playing with these different theories of signs and, and you know, doing this, this kind of alpha bong sublation behind your back type thing. It's uh, like in that middle part, admitting, therefore, that the generalized systems of commodities is a system of prostitution under the cover of trades of objects and services, nothing else besides, or from mm-hmm. that there is only one authentically universal uh, communication, the exchange of bodies by the secret language, bodily signs, of which states woman's criminal provides the principle and illustrates one effect, the effect of insurrection or perpetual shaking. It's just, as to summarize, I think you've already mentioned this, Taylor. I think it's like, it ties back to what we'll see in like chapter three, which is like that, that whole notion of exchange of, or like one desire or something and that exchange itself is, is, or could be diagrammed as prostitution. And, and, and it's, it's like, if it doesn't, if that's not what, like a, a market is then you know it's like what what do you defer it to what exactly is it then right you're sort of yeah. i'm just thinking very i guess uh vulgar marxian terms it's like you i mean to sell your labor to sell you it's selling your body yeah so in that sense this prostitution metaphor is is quite quite spot on but he's being you know obviously i think that it's a lot sexier <laughs> right to to bring up a prostitute and a pimp to drive home that this ultimate truth about libidinal economy as expressed yeah. through capitalism or or the reverse of that whatever which capitalism seems like a very as libidinal economy which seems to me kind of like a very strong point almost to like want to bring up because like at least in like contemporary like the united states like protestant work ethic you know this whole notion of like prostitution of like distinct criminal acts mm-hmm. and how in a way like it's not even like it's not even like the, the act itself that is seen as morally recomprehend or mm-hmm. re- reprehensible or, or whatever it's simply you know reprehensible at the, uh it's the it's you know it's just kind of like the the whole notion of like well it's just perverse so therefore it's mm-hmm. it's it's bad it's like this like the, just the mere connection that it has with like just sexuality in general like this piety and protestant and yeah. Christianity that if you brought this up to someone, they'd be like, well, that's not at all what we mean. It's interesting. There's almost like, I think we sense this in a, like a mythological way when people always say that prostitution is the oldest occupation. I mean, if you really think about yeah. what that means, it's literally right. like what Loyotard yeah. is saying. That's so you good. Know, yeah. Very Exchange nice. itself begins at right. prostitution. Exactly. At, li- at libidinal. Yeah. That's the libidinal. Economy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's really good. Yeah. Cause no, I was going to say this, paragraph this might be like the maybe the highlight of the chapter or like really what draws out everything that he's trying to get at all economies are libidinal <laughs> yeah right yeah exactly 
the exchange of bodies by the secret language of bodily signs. How much of this directly impacts Baudrillard, you know, like commodity fetishism in a way, like, yeah, like yeah. how, I guess like it's, I think in seduction, that might be the book to read to tie this into Baudrillard. Seduction's good. Also the a critique of the political economy of the sign. And I think that, um, you know, speaking of logic of sense again, one of the essays there is called, it is called Fanta- well, in the section Phantasm of Modern Literature, he has a le- an essay on Klesowski. It's called Klesowski's or Body's Language, um, which I thought was interesting. So I, it would be interesting here to s- compare that essay with this, um, this last part of the, the chapter that, that really focuses on, on Klesowski, and it might help to bring to light some of the arguments uh, Leotard's making. It's, it looks like a, I don't remember this essay. I remember reading it, but I don't remember it because I hadn't, it's kind of hard. It's kind of like second degree indirect learning when we haven't read Klosowski's novels. Yeah. But I think even like this whole notion of exchange between pimp and prostitute and John or whatever, like this is a very good crystallization, I think, of mm-hmm. this whole way to negotiate this relationship, this the social relation in the context of libido and libidinal economy and how that applies to capitalism and exchange and value and also pleasure, right? Because he's saying here the criminal is used as a disconnection, the withdrawal of his fortune and squandering to the ends of untransmittable pleasure, provocation designed to give rise to the alternative before which dissimulation or duplicity of signs necessarily invests a politics of the libido. Either recognize that the repudiation of complete monstrosity by institutions reversed into de facto prostitution, material and moral, admitting therefore that the generalized system of commodities is the system of prostitution under the cover of the trade of objects and services and nothing else besides, or affirm there's only one authentically universal universal communication, the exchange of bodies by the secret language of bodily science. I mean, that's libidinal. That's libidinal. That lays out libidinal economics right there, I think. Very, I don't know how to necessarily chop that down to something a little bit more digestible, but that to me, I think does a great job of sort of summing up one of the major arguments. Libido is material and exchange when we're talking about exchange, exchange is always a, a material yeah, exchange. Exactly. The exchange of bodies, because we're all producing whatever commodity is being produced by the body somehow, right? At some, at some level, even if it's information work, right, mm-hmm. that is coming from a mind or a brain or like communication, etc. So yeah, this prostitution metaphor is like very provocative, but it's right. It's kind of stripping away all the bullshit about capitalism and like... <laughs> putting it out on front street that oh this is this is not about it's all sort of this mystification of of social relations of exchange between bodies that is ultimately in the capitalist context always going to be about yeah that and then sort of taking that it takes marx it takes marx to its logical conclusion when marx says that you know political economy mystifies things and the way we figure out a science of the economy is as he says to enter into the hidden abode of production but loyotard makes this great connection that the hidden abode of production is desire itself you yeah, know yeah exactly it's getting to that materiality that the production of desire in the same way that marx kind of stopped at the production of value through labor you know it's taking it 
further and further into the actual science of economy, which is also the science of libido. I like this too, this like this little italicized portion about monstrosity by institutions is reversed into de facto prostitution, material and moral, admitting therefore that the generalized system of commodities in the system of prostitution under the cover of the trade of objects and services and nothing else besides. You're right. This is extremely like this materialist (laughs) critique of, of economics in a way that is... Yeah, provocative and really drives home, I think. Yeah, you're right. The ult- This real, this notion of libidinal economy very distinctly. Coop, if you want to go up just real quick uh, to the s- page before this one, there is none of this in society of the friends of crime, however. A society cut from the social body, neither catching a perverse passions nor concentrating them in it compared to the pimp and the cop, the criminal is a very rich man, 25,000 annual income, 10,000 francs in expenses per victim for furthering jouissance. And his function is not at all the concentration of the partial pulsions. These expended in profusion of the bodies of subjects will never be inscribed on the social body as money, thanks to the criminal's intervention. If Marx calls all profit stealing in a way like almost like every everyone that participates in capitalism through like this uh, lever exchange, labor exchange of like, oh, wage labor is like a, a, I mean, like a criminal, like they're all making, mm-hmm. they're all making money. They're all in a way there. It's like, if you want to make a moral distinction here, they're all criminals, but I don't want to be, I don't want to like moralize or be over reductive here. Cause at the same time, as we see, as we clearly see, it's, uh, it's for a moment of joysons. Like, you know, it's, is the person who's seeking out these things, a criminal, uh, is the person that's actually engaging in the act itself, a criminal, even like in, in things like when you, when even capitalists moralize something like the black market, right? It's still p- participating in these, these um, monetary exchange systems, but you know, it's deemed quote unquote undesirable or morally reprehensible because of the things that are being exchanged. But what's the difference between a legitimized system Right, you know, like the merchant system, you know, like the the current exchanges of commodities that we participate in, and then those of like the criminal underworld. Yeah. And it's, it's like it's, it's every capitalist is a every capitalist is a pimp. Every worker is a prostitute. Every consumer is a John. Mm-hmm. Do you guys remember the band album cover for um, for that one album uh, of the Dead Kennedys? Right. It's oh yeah, the famous. I forget the photographer who did it, but you know, it's just like it's just all you see are dicks and asses, right? It's this yeah. montage of 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 a kind of repeating image of dicks and asses, uh, fucking dicks, fucking asses, right? So we're all capitalists, so we so you know, so we fuck others and we all get fucked by others. And I I, I see I see Leotars putting this out a little bit more theoretically uh, in a more theoretically interesting way using Klasowski's uh, work here. We do have this cultural moment, though, where people are starting to kind of have sympathy or de- literally decriminalize prostitution from the perspective yeah, of the like prostitute, you know? Sex work is definitely something that's becoming, becoming yeah, it's exactly. becoming norm- sort of normalized, right? Right. <laughs> to a degree heretofore unseen because of the procession of, or like capital's inability to reproduce its own success or like abundance to fulfill its own promise. I don't know if we want to wrap up there, but I felt like, I don't know, that's a good quote to end up on. And I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, this, this too goes to that, I think, larger point that Leotard is making is this, there's no real positive expression for desire. Mm-hmm. Like desire is desire. It's not, you know what I mean? To No matter what, it's bit predicated on exchange between 
between bodies, let's say. And then I think as we move through the book, we'll probably uncover what that means or the, the other implications, or he'll probably put forth a more rigorous argumentation about what that what that looks like. But I think this is a good window into the rest of the book. I'm really excited to dig into into yeah. chapter three in particular, which yeah. is where we'll yeah. be looking at, at Mark's quite a bit more directly. And I think as we read, I think we'll end up coming back to this chapter yeah. a lot because yeah. I think it kind of, it's hard to just talk about this chapter without yeah. the context of the book. Right. Exactly. And I think the complexity of this chapter gets a little bit unfolded with yeah. you know three and four especially. And we yeah. can sort of plug these into each other as we go. Yeah, for sure. I think he's going to build on this on this chapter quite a bit, certainly in the next one. Any final thoughts before we wrap up for the day? Final thoughts, plugs, whatever you want to do. Use me as a great subheader. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, we're good. I mean, you know, Coop, I'll be, I'll be back in all kinds of various forms. If you guys want to hear more of me, check out Chaos V Street. I think i plug that last time yeah but, uh hoping to get another episode of that out soon and just become a better sound editor because that's the only thing that's <laughs> delayed by uh my my episode so yeah gotta gotta learn on the fly cute do you have any pieces coming out i do I, i'm working on something i didn't really i usually okay so i do a newsletter which you should sign up for if you want to know the location of it i have it linked in my link tree, which is on my Twitter okay. at CN Numina, or is it C Numina? C Numina. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, in there I go through my whole thing with uh, my newsletter and then key, I update what I'm working on and what I'm doing. And um, I am currently working on a piece. It's a bit of a longer one than my, mm-hmm. I usually try to keep them two to three minutes long, but this one is a bit longer. And so that's why I didn't release one on Friday, which I usually release them every Friday, but this one, I think people will like this one. Awesome. I'm looking forward to that. And yeah, looking forward to new Chaosophy Street too. It's fun to do this. It's nice to to talk to you guys. Oh yeah, I love it. It's, it's, it was great. It's very helpful too. You got another monster episode to edit. So uh, hopefully yeah. <laughs> all our audio came in pretty smooth. So it's not too much of a chore for yeah. me. Should be pretty, pretty well. Nice. But young... You didn't really give us your like at handle or anything. Yeah, just follow me on Twitter, Young Agamben. Why Agamben? That is Why Agamben. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, definitely look at everybody's media that's in this in this podcast. Uh, hopefully, I'll do some writing soon and just post it on my Twitter. But I don't have anything directly in the works. But that's sort of like a medium term thing going on. But yeah, follow me on Twitter. I'll have everyone's links up in the uh, show notes, but this will be the Machinic Unconscious Happier with Cooper Cherry signing off for the week. What I did?
the following. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange. 